You know, I see this as like being an advanced scout watching the, watching another team play ball. You know, if you could stand at the field and watch how they approach the way they do things, you're prepared when you face that team yourself. And I think that if you can approach the FDA and say, look, here's what we have based upon the guidance. What do you think? I think you're better off than waiting until you face them down when you have to do it because you've run out of time and you really aren't prepared. Welcome to CMC Live. This is the show where we discuss CMC regulations and guidances simplified through real-life experiences and risk-based advice. Each episode, we speak with subject matter experts as well as other leading industry authorities. With your host, Ed Narkey. Welcome to this week's edition, this week's podcast of CMC Live. Once again, my co-hosts, Miranda and Brian, I am Ed Narkey, and we're here to educate and oversimplify and undersimplify in some instances the regulations and expectations out there based on our experiences. Joining us once again, Dr. Jim Mensel, a colleague of ours who works in the API slash regulatory areas, mostly working with clients at small biotech companies, uh, typically programs that have short timelines, limited budgets, and board of directors who like to get things done quickly without spending a lot of money. So, Jim, uh, welcome to the show today. Today, we, we're going to take off uh, a bit of last week. We, last week, we discussed last podcast, part one, we discussed expedited drug development, breakthrough designation therapies. And uh, for the folks that haven't heard that yet, or uh, as a recap, uh, there's actually a few things out there where companies can actually get some expedited approvals based on some, some trials and data that they get from clinical studies. The problem has always been the acceleration of the CMC program. Um, a lot of times those pieces of data and those type of programs um, still need time and they cannot be expedited. So thus, um, CMC sometimes become, becomes the bottleneck or the, the showstopper at the end um, to push programs out too far. So today we're going to get into some of the more um, specific areas and items that folks would have to deal with. And Jim's a great person to talk to about this. One of the reasons I mentioned he's he's also a regulatory guy here is because he has had a lot of dealings with these programs. One of the major discussion points and debates lately in the last probably eight years has been uh, establishing regulatory starting materials and the importance of starting with the ideas around that. Everyone has a, a bit of a different take on it. So last eight years, there's been a dramatic increase in process understanding. That's that's what folks want now. They want you know the story behind the story uh, for compliance. It's, it's much more... Um, frowned upon to, to commit very little data um, unless you're holding it in your pocket. Most of the companies, the small biotechs out there have limited data just because of the funding and they tend not to make a lot of lots of material. So most recently, I guess it was 2010 or 11, um, the ICH, which is the International Conference of Harmonization, pulled together the ICH Q12, which had a lot more information on um, establishing drug substance process controls around that and um, it provides a little bit of flexibility in the selection of starting materials uh, depending upon scenarios. So Q11 creates an environment which uh, sponsors can develop a process understanding that accommodates any changes in the future as well. Methods of synthesis, um, changing your starting materials, and all this is generated, you know, all the data that's required as well is, is for patient safety. So these principles provide assurance that a, a starting material meets the, uh, the requisite technical and quality elements to allow for the commercialization. And commercialization is um, essentially when you submit your marketing application, your, your NDA or BLA. Um, this is information that we would provide in there. You would be accruing it over the course of development. With that said, drug development has always been a, 
uh, it's always been forced and companies have always been forced to balance the need to get the safe, efficacious, um, profitable drug products. Not everyone could be a large, uh, vertically integrated um, big pharma. Uh, and that's kind of how our group comes in to help. So we invited Jim on here today to talk about some of the issues. So Jim, welcome once again. At this point, timing, um, I think a lot of the questions that we get from clients are, when do you need to justify or just start thinking about a, a regulatory starting material? Any, any thoughts from your experiences? Well, my view is that you need to start thinking about it probably as early as phase two. You could even begin thinking about it earlier. There are several reasons why. You're going to get to a point where you've got to decide where things are going to be made. And anything up to the point of the regulatory starting material can be made non-GMP. Anything that from the regulatory starting material onward is GMP. So as you begin to think about your CMO you're going to use, what sites they might have, even the cost of goods for your material, knowing your regulatory starting material can, have, can say a lot to you about where you might want to run certain parts of the process. The other part of it is that it takes a fair bit of time to develop a package to support a regulatory starting material proposal to an agency. Okay, and, and the better packages are ones that are uh, supported by data. For example, knowing your process and where impurities purge, okay, knowing the points where you crystallize, knowing the things that could contribute to the quality of the proposed regulatory starting material. reason this is important is because the stronger your package is, the more likely you are to be successful in your proposal. Now, the FDA will listen to a scientific argument. There are guidances, as you said, in, in ICH-11 which the FDA truly sees as guidances, and they all listen to a scientifically reasonable proposal around those guidances. So the better your proposal is, the likelier they are to respond. And typically, if they do respond in the affirmative, it's more like, okay, we're agreeable to this, and uh, we'll want to see X, Y, and Z going forward. And during the review period of the NDA, we will then comment finally. But at least having that nod up front is very valuable. Also, having them say no outright can be very valuable as well. Now, when you're dealing with the Europeans, it's a different situation. They treat the ICH guidance as more like rules. And in that instance, it's very important to figure out how closely you fit to what might be a more rule-based approach. For example, is a material commercially available? Is it a commodity as opposed to intermediate? So the sooner you begin thinking about this, the better you can begin to formulate a plan for how you're going to support what you want to propose. The other thing that's very important is to know your fallback position. There might be more than one. The reason that's important is because you have to start thinking about what that chemistry would look like if you had to fall back, because that chemistry that now you would have prepared to run non-GMP would become GMP, which means it needs to be very carefully controlled and it needs to be profiled with things like um, proven acceptable range experiments, normal operating range experiments. So I, I suggest that as soon as people have the process they believe they're going to run identified, they should identify where their starting material may be and build a case around that and do their own internal test run as to whether they feel themselves they can support their argument. So I, I have a question for you, Jim, if you don't mind. So it's not uncommon for smaller companies to have a division on that position when to commit this and when not to commit it. And there's obviously fixed budgets involved. How do you approach a client that maybe doesn't have that same viewpoint and you need to explain to them the pitfalls of not 
following that or not trying to consider FDA and EU expectations for ICH at an early phase? How do you reconcile that with what you know you need to do and the client may want to dig their heels and go the other way? It's, you know, it's not uncommon, uh, Brian, what you're asking. Even CMC teams at companies are often reluctant to approach the FDA because that they just have this perception that um, they take a big risk. And of course, if you're not prepared, you do. So the best way I found to help clients understand the need to approach is to describe what has to occur as a consequence of knowing or not knowing. And what it really comes down to is when you're having these discussions, you're, you're probably coming somewhere near close to the end of phase two. Let's talk about a normal program that's not expedited, right? They're going to be making their pivotal trial materials at the end of phase two. And that more or less locks the route in place. So it becomes very difficult to change things after that point. And if they know where their starter material is going to be, they can also begin to look at putting that at the site where it should be. Because there's very few companies that are not, that are not aware of the fact that there's going to be a cost of goods element that they're going to have to sell to their investors. And let's face it, if they can cut out three steps of a synthesis and make those non-GMP and run those somewhere that's less expensive, for example, India, as opposed to running them in the EU or the US, under GMP, there could be tremendous cost savings on that program. So there are several angles. One is the cost angle. The sooner you know, the sooner you can begin to move this to a less expensive place, right? The other thing is the sooner you are ready to propose, the sooner you'll hear FDA or EMA's response. And that can be very telling because if they disagree, you immediately know you're going to your fallback position. So knowledge is power. And to the extent that you can support a proposal, why would you not put that out there and know where you stand? You know, I see this as like being an advanced scout watching, the, watching another team play ball. You know, if you could stand at the field and watch how they approach the way they do things, you're prepared when you face that team yourself. And I think that if you can approach the FDA and say, look, here's what we have based upon the guidance. What do you think? I think you're better off than waiting until you face them down when you have to do it because you've run out of time and you really aren't prepared. You said something that was interesting and it was, it was very quick, but you referenced that fallback position. So do you recommend to clients to begin to understand and comprehend that there may need to be a plan B and, and how often or how early do you work with clients to develop that plan B? Early. I think that in addition to considering where their starting material would be, they need to figure out that if that is not accepted, what is the fallback? Now, I'll qualify that, Brian, and say that you know if the proposed material is an intermediate in the process, it's a more difficult sell. Not impossible, but more difficult. So if you have an intermediate you're proposing, then you need to think about if this one doesn't get accepted, how far back can I go where I feel I have a more secure position? How far back do I want to go? You might need more than one spot. Now, if it's going to be very rare this will occur if you're proposing a commodity. Because in a commodity, in that case, it's a material that's already sold in commerce, right? So it's more a situation where you have an advanced intermediate that you're proposing as a starting material and that you know may not get accepted and that is several steps away from something else. And you have to figure out what that something else is. So I ask people to plan both at the same time so that they are ready to support the primary position and also understand what it would take to support the secondary position. So Jim, that's, that was great. I'd like to step back because there may be folks joining us for the first time uh, today or may have not had the familiarity or experiences with discussing this. So 
it sounds from you know from my angle, I'm a regulatory background. From a perspective, regulatory perspective, there's no universally right or wrong choices. There's nothing in the guidances that that's going to prescribe exactly what to do. Each program's different, right? Ultimately, you mentioned sourcing. You mentioned number of steps, or you, you you're aware of number of steps. And just for those not familiar, you know, this term starting material, and in this case, regulatory starting material, has been adopted by the agencies out there to indicate you know, the point where regulatory change control happens. Basically, once once change control, once GMP, now it's also the point where GMP is expected and in, introduced into the synthesis of a drug substance. Any changes prior to that, prior to the regulatory starting material, wouldn't say they're not important, but that, that's the reason why we've established that point. That's where, you know, any changes prior to that shouldn't affect any of your API or ultimate drug product. So going back to the, you know, there's no universal right choices, I'd like to maybe focus in on some of the strategy areas. You know, ultimately, in my opinion, the the regulatory starting material uh, substance boils down to the issue of impurities. If you have a fairly long synthesis that's very clean at the very you know last steps, I've always had success. You know, making that case versus even a short synthesis where the impurity profile is is, is changes. You know, based on uh, what day it is. So, looking at a few things. Can you talk to some of these, and I can remind you which ones? You know, lengthening a synthetic route, uh, where where that route starts. You know, does it have to be three steps prior? Does it have to be five? Uh, where does that GMP start? The second thing is limiting the production of the RSM to one or more approved routes. You know, have you had experience or thoughts on you know having multiple routes uh, that feed into, and then also how that affects GMP and where GMP starts? And then third, limiting the manufacturer to a single uh, supplier. You know, you may also have a, a same similar process, very simple or maybe a little more complex coming from two different routes. Maybe one's coming from Asia versus one's coming from Europe. So those three things, and I could highlight them again. Can you speak to any of those as, in regards to um, how the FDA and also sponsors deal with um, establishing the, the where GMP starts and regulatory starting materials? Sure. In fact, and I would say that one of the crux issues with choosing a starting material is the whole case you can make about how you purge the impurities from that point forward. Okay. So for example, you know, I like to think of things in terms of flow diagrams, right? So if you make a flow diagram from the material, the molecule you're going to choose and you look where in the process are there points of purification, they could be extractions, could be a crystallization. Some processes include chromatographies, but what you need to do is to find where are the points from that spot where impurities can be purged. And the more specific you can be, this specific impurity in this material is purged at this step. You know, it goes to this level. If you have spike fate and purge studies from that point where you know the impurities that are present in that material and you spike them in enhanced levels and you track their purge and their fate throughout the process, that all strengthens the argument for understanding what kind of controls you need to have on that proposed material and its quality. That's the downstream. Okay. That's saying, okay. So you talk about how many steps from the end, you know, I don't know if there's going to be a governing number, but what I would say is clearly more steps, especially steps that include crystallizations or purifying events is better. Okay. Steps that include bringing impurities into the process are not going to be better. So, you know, steps can work for or against you. Now, that's the downstream picture. There's the upstream picture, too, and that is what do you know about what controls the level of impurities in that proposed regulatory starting material? You know, what do you know about how you're going to control its quality so that those impurities are below certain levels 
and you could set specifications for that material that you know from your spike, fate, and purge studies, or manufacturing experience will purge so that your API is going to pass specifications. So it's really important to look at your starting material that you're proposing in the context of what contributes to impurities in it. By the way, that includes metals. That can include rogue solvents like benzene or chloroform, okay? So you need to think about what's the contributor coming into it. How do you control that? Then the next thing is from that point, how do you understand that material in context to what it contributes downstream and how that purges? So you really need to look very holistically at that material at its spot in the synthesis and how you're going to control or convince the FDA or the EMA that you control the impurities coming from it. The better the case you make, the more likely they are to say this is an acceptable material. I hope that answers the question. It does. And I'll move forward here. Just having flashbacks of when I started in manufacturing, I worked at a company called Lonza, fairly well-known CMO out there that does a lot of chemistry. Um, I moved at that point into um, regulatory and, you know, I guess that was 20 something years ago, but you know, th- the guidances and the regulations and the exposure and experiences and offshoring and all these things come into play, which almost changed the way we looked at starting materials and where GMP starts. I think it was 1987, the original uh, drug substance guidance. Um, if anyone on the phone or out there is familiar with it, you know, it was pretty clear cut, very prescriptive. You know, you had to incorporate into the drug substance a structural element. You had to, it has to be commercially available. I remember talking with different suppliers, most of them selling things that weren't going into the tire and automotive industry. And we tried to make a case that it was commercially available and you could see where that goes. And, you know, it had to be made by common procedures. And I think that's where, you know, the FDA, this is before ICH started to say, you know, it's too prescriptive. Not one program can fit into that uh, and be the same. So 2004, they drafted a new guidance out there that stuck for a while. It's called Guidance for Industry Drug Substance. Much better. That's the one I remember. That was my Bible. Same thing, though, very prescriptive. Towards the end of when I was working at Large Form, ICHQ11 um, sort of came out on top of Q. Q7, which sort of defines where GMP. I think we talked about this once, or it might have been someone else that works here at DSI, how we could have written ICHQ11 based on our our experiences at um, toll toll CMOs, toll manufacturers, because we would just watch what they would do and we would write down everything wrong. (laughs) But, um, you know, essentially... it's good drug development. You know, it's, it's, it's sound drug development, process understanding, finding your sweet spot, knowing about your operating per, you know, parameters, knowing what's critical in the process steps, and then just generating data, even on scale, and if you can. Would you like to share a little bit of your thoughts on ICHQ11? Well, I think it's a great document, Ed. And here's what, here's what I would say. I'll go back to the sports analogy, right? If you were going to show up for Super Bowl, and the other team was going to give you their playbook, and do it and say, here, here's our playbook. Here's the place we're going to run for every one of these downs, every one of these quarters. You'd be crazy not to take that, okay? The FDA essentially has given you their playbook. They're saying, look, you know, we've been through a lot of games here. We've played a lot of games with a lot of people. Here's all the things we've seen that they didn't do that they should have done, okay? I think if you're in this business and you're an API guy or a drug product person and you want to be a good scientist in the business, you cannot not read those guidances. Because the FDA is opening their playbook and they're saying, here's what we want to see. You know, here's how we suggest you think about this. So I feel that the, 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 Q, the later Q guidances, the 8, 9, 10, 11, now the 12, the one that's in draft about post-approval changes, I think they're fantastic. I, I feel myself I could have written ICHQ 11. 
anybody that's done process chemistry, that's paid attention to what they've done, that has suffered things that didn't go well, could write that document. I think it's a great document. From the context of regulatory starting materials, of course, there is a component in there that speaks to them. And then there's the ICH-11 Q&A, which is a document sent out to clarify points in ICHQ-11. And that even goes further onto the starting material piece. So yeah, I think it's a great document. And I think that I think that any process chemist should read it and understand what's being looked for. Okay. You set me up for this one. I have to I have to say it's it's a sports analogy again. It's kind of like the Patriots, right? They they have the other team's playbook though, so they kind of know <laughs> what's coming. Or de- or deflated football, one or the other. Oh, that, that's a different topic for another podcast. So to, to carry on the ICH, you know, we, we had an evolution of uh, guidance as regulations. The 87, you know, just didn't fit, didn't work for 90% of the folks, um, very manipulable to get what you want, but didn't really help with the quality portion. 2004, you know, evolution of that, FDA. Then you mentioned the ICH guidance is harmonized, you know, discussed, evolved. There was a point where there was a lot of discussion about QBD, if anyone remembers quality by design. And... I think that that was kind of in the midst of when those those two ICH uh, 11, 10 and 11, 9, 10 and 11 actually were written. And I still sometimes get questions about QBD. And for, for those that don't remember QBD or never heard of it, um, something called Quality by Design, it was an initiative by the FDA. Essentially, if you did a little bit of this and a little bit of that and generated some data and really got to understand your process, you would be provided with regulatory relief, meaning that you could make some changes without oversight, just have them slip through. But unfortunately, not by just folks not you know taking advantage of that, but but also it just it was it didn't work out as planned. It sort of fell by the wayside, and um, I can probably express this. It was a large pharma initiative, a lot of high volume products as well, storage and costs, and those things came into it. However, uh, you know we work with a lot of small emerging biotechs, and we've kind of seen we you know we still see the traditional approach, you know three batches, certificate of analysis, batch records, but there's not a lot of process understanding. We do see, though, you know, working with the vendors and the CMOs, some of the enhanced approach, you know, there's a lot more collaboration these days with small biotech companies working with their CMO. And in some cases, when they use consultants, I mean, we've had the pleasure and luxury to do this. We can help guide the, the CMOs based on that we know a little bit more about the business model and what the end game is uh, for the sponsor, meaning they, they might want to license it out. They might want to know a little bit more about their supply chain to make it a value chain um, versus in the past. So. The question, I guess, is, you know, the traditional approach, you know, providing minimal starting material information about the, you know, impurities, for example, defining and maintaining really tight specs for starting material. That, that's the way, you know, it's, it's quality by chance. So we have no information. We'll set really tight specs and we can make it. Now, large companies can do that if you're going to dump a few batches. But we know, you know, just from some of our clients and some of our experiences, that's not the right thing to do. You know, you don't want to set a spec, spec too tight not knowing a lot about the process. So some of the enhanced, you know, approaches that we've seen, and this is where you might talk to them, you know, selecting, selecting materials based on scientific understanding, looking at pilot scale and some scale-up studies, some of the factorial design work that might be done in development to draw some conclusions, you know, to make some more, more uh, intelligent decisions on setting specs. Providing some of this information in the comp- uh, conformance sections of an NDA, uh, some of the manufacturing process development to help the reviewer understand that you know you are in control and understand your process, and then of course the big one you mentioned it earlier, you know understanding the source. Okay, S- certain parts of the globe have maybe some higher standards or different practices. 
And then ultimately, you mentioned, and I'll, I'll leave it at that, the for, uh, formation and the fate of purge of impurities. That on two or three, I guess, programs that I worked on, that sort of saved the day just to have all that information on fate and purge of impurities. So talking about the enhanced approach, is, which is kind of an offshoot of the QBD, for those who uh, are out there, you know, who are interested, where is QBD today, you know, versus the traditional approach where some companies still employ, you know, can you, can you talk to some of those different approaches to, uh, to that to follow? Sure. Well, you know, the QBD, by the way, I was a big believer in QBD, right? And it came out when I was still very involved with generics. But the idea behind QBD was that you build the quality into the process. You know, there was a, a train of thought that you would release the material, and that was where you controlled quality. If it flunked, you'd reprocess it, right? So in other words, a lot of times FDA would go in and everything was based upon whether the material passed or failed its final release specifications. So that was where you really figured out what you had, right? Now, I have to say there were some companies that were very good, but there were some that ran fly-by-night just like that. So what QBD really was designed, was intended to do, was to force the scientists to think about what things do you need to control as the process is going forward that eliminates a problem upfront. So you don't have it later on. Let's look, for example, at a, at a, at a, a class three solvent. Suppose early in the process, you, you use butanol for crystallization, right? In a quality by design program, if you could test the crystallized material for butanol and it passes, you would never have to test for butanol again if you don't use it in the process, okay? The same is true for a potentially genotoxic impurity. Suppose you know you have one early in the process. Well, if you validate a method to test for it at step two in an eight-step process and it passes at step two, it's not going to grow. You don't need to pass test for it in the API. So the idea is that when you do a quality by design approach or an enhanced development approach, you want to know as much as you can about your process and where the things that you need to control are and how do you control them. The whole idea is to put the controls into the process. You're talking about setting specifications, okay? you know, your spike, fate, and purge data is very important. Okay, so instead of setting specifications that are just so tight because you're afraid of anything, you, you spike a certain amount of an impurity. You have to have the impurities or find a batch that's dirty. You spike them in and you run the chemistry downstream. What do you see? You know, do they go away? Also, you should do a you know, paper exercise. What could they turn into in the chemistry, right? All of this is, is, is understanding your process and what it will do, and what you need to control. So you could talk about enhanced development. Really what it is is people paying attention. I have a colleague from um, Sandoz, and he talks without end about how well they develop processes there because their scientists using TLC plates in the 70s and 80s understood every impurity in that process and where it went, what it turned into, how they got rid of it. And he said that when he looks at these guidances, he feels like he's being told something that he learned early in his career that people just seem to have forgotten. And I kind of agree with him. Um, he's one of our DSI colleagues, very good friend of mine, but I think he's 100% right. He sees this, the statistics as going overboard. A lot of people like the statistics. When you do design of experiments where you change multiple variables to see what has an effect, you need the statistics, okay? But what it really comes down to is you want to try to understand what's making your process tick. You know, if you get some new impurity, the process is telling you something. Where is it coming from? Sometimes you get impurities you can't get rid of. You know, how, how do you deal with an impurity that does not go away? 
okay, so part of your planning approach would be, well, maybe we need to spike that into a tox batch. So it really comes down to thinking ahead of time. What do I need to do at step A out of a process that goes out to step G every step along the way so that things that form, I either know how I get rid of them or I don't form them. I hope that help, helps answer your question. Yeah, that that's that's great. And I think these tie together, just thinking about ICHQ 11 for, again, for those who aren't familiar with it, check it out. You know, I think I asked Jim, or he's kind of explained it along the way, how to conduct an assessment. You know, you're trying to establish your regulatory starting materials, um, you know, any changes that you foresee or data that you have, uh, operating conditional changes, you know, near the beginning of the process have a low, lower probably potential to impact the quality. Having a, a strong impurity profile, uh, knowing, you know, what's in there, having the right methods in place, uh, the qualified methods at the time earlier on, um, especially if you have a risky uh, synthesis. We talked about some of the analytical. We'll leave it at that, though. I guess, you know, it's open for the discussion here. I think Brian's more of a drug product guy, but uh, he he may have a few questions. I guess, you know, kind of getting close to the end here, I'd like to kind of sort of talk, you know, where do we go from here? You know, we talked about some good science, you know, not necessarily exhaustive science. It's That's imperative. You know, small biotechs are spending a lot of money on their, their clinical studies. Uh, as everyone knows in the audience, if they have done this, you know, the, a lot of the budgets postponed or withheld from CMC until the very end. And that's where a lot of the, the concerns come up. And sometimes unfortunate products that are just that are delayed because of that. And there's, there's not a lot of um, leniency or relief um, for not having compliance data. Essentially, you know, you're held to the same standard in a breakthrough designated program, expedite it. There might be some ways to discuss things early on or commit to certain things, but you know, your, your control of the process and the product is still there from the substance to the product. And there's no single template, you know, that, that drives these decisions. Uh, every sponsor's program is different. Every every uh, sponsor has a has a different uh, mindset, sometimes culturally, and also an end game. You know, do they want to commercialize this, find second sourcing, take it to a, a certain point, and let the next investor buy it? So, you know, the justification of regulatory starting materials and any choice of the synthesis, I would say it's a balance, you know, between an appropriate regulatory control and you know adhering to the guidances. And sustainable manufacturability. Um, that's another thing. You can't make batches and just discard them, right? You want to kind of use them. And then the variety of factors can impact that practicality based on each company. Any any other thoughts? I think this is a, a topic that continues to be hot in the news. And you know, as we know, Jim, every day we get questions around this topic, regulatory starting materials, especially in light of a program that's that's um that's an expedited program. I could add some thought, Ed. One of my favorite quotes is from Yogi Berra. You know, you can observe a lot by watching, right? There's an awful lot that you could do that doesn't cost anything. And a lot of times people miss this. I know, I think each of you guys has heard me say this. You know, when the process is being run, put your ear to the ground as a chemist, be a chemist. Okay. So we're not in the plant. Okay. We're consulting, but we've been in the plant. Okay. We've studied chemistry. I have more textbooks on the wall than I can remember. Okay. Let the process talk to you. It tells you things, okay? The faces don't split, okay? So they take the, the rag layer with the product face. What's in that rag layer? Why aren't the faces splitting? You know, my belief is really pay attention when the process is being run. Make a paper process flow diagram for yourself. What goes in? What comes out? What are your in-process controls? What are your specifications? Does it all make sense? You could do this with a piece of paper. It doesn't cost anything. Pencils are cheap. Paper's cheap. You know, you could use ChemDraw like I do. 
the, the way I often do it in my backyard on a nice day is with a pencil and paper. I do the process out of my head. What's going on with this process? Okay. You observe a lot by watching. Just watch what the process is doing. Write it on paper. Compare what you see happening in the plant or the Kilo lab or the research lab with what you've got on that paper. And you will be so educated by what the process is doing. And that will guide what you do going forward and save money because you'll focus on the things that make a difference and know which ones don't. And when you don't have a lot of time to do to develop product, that matters a lot. Okay. So again, back to the process understanding, right? It's not, not that difficult. And I don't know when the last you opened those textbooks, but I, I have a couple over there. I don't think I opened the first time, actually. <laughs> I was in the process process fix and process uh, uh, development and transfer. So a lot of the stuff was already known. I just threw a couple of those levers and valves, right? Um, anything else, Miranda? You, Miranda is our business development head here at DSI, talks to a lot of these small emerging biotechs out there, gets a lot of questions. I think I just saw one come across to my email about an early stage program and an IND. Any, anything, uh, not to put you on the spot here, but you know, if, if you have any questions, no, Jim's here right now. Uh, no, not necessarily. Not for regulatory starting materials. It's kind of um, something that I've never dug into. <laughs> right, right. But yeah. As a cheap, shameless plug, I'll throw it in there. We <laughs> also, on our DSI website, dsinformatics.com, we have an Ask the Experts page. And, um, you know, we, we open up uh, this to have some, any, anyone really around the world globally to send us a question. Um, for the most part, we can address a question high level, but without facts and details and some of those things, you know, we would, we would prefer to have a discussion. But have done this for 14 plus years, about 200 different programs. So we've seen a lot of atypical situations and mm -hmm. a lot of missing data, a lot of very aggressive, um, you know, very short syntheses and things like that. So, and then on that note, maybe Brian, anything, anything in closing here, and then we can wrap. I've learned not to go past a Yogi Berra quote. So I think, uh, I think Jim, <laughs> you summed it up perfectly, really, honestly. <laughs> well, oh, the, yeah, I think, uh, Bill Belichick's going to be sending you the uh, the playbook next week. I'll make note of it and send and tag him on Twitter with this uh, this podcast. But anyway, on that on that <laughs> note, stay tuned for uh, maybe future episodes on this. Maybe delving into different areas. Um, with that said, I'm Ed Narky hosting CMC Live with Miranda and Brian. And once again, thanks uh, to Jim Mensel, Dr. James Mensel uh, of DSI, here for his experiences for the last 35 years. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which include a summary, timestamps, and any links mentioned in this episode, please visit dsinformatics.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find the information from this episode and any past episodes. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash cmc live. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.